If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. What makes a person evil? Where does personal responsibility end when considering some of the worst crimes against humanity? These difficult questions are at the heart of our upcoming conversation with Dan Gretton, whose book, I, You, We, Them, looks at the psychology of individuals and corporations who played a part in some of the worst atrocities of the past 200 years, from the Holocaust to human rights violations in Nigeria. Dan spoke to Rachel Dilling. So hi, Dan. It's great to have you on the podcast today. So we're talking about your book, I, You, We, Them, which looks at the psychology behind some of the less visible perpetrators of crimes against humanity in history. So talking about people that you call desk killers. Um, These people who ordered and directed some of the worst atrocities in recent history. Um, So I thought perhaps to start off, Maybe you could define exactly what we mean when we use this term yes, desk well, killer. Yes, well, thank you for the invitation to be here today, Rachel, and um, I'm delighted to be able to talk about the book with you. Um, the, 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 the term desk killer is actually one that I've used, um, and I'm trying to get that term into kind of really wide public debate um, now. Um, I think it's been one of the most overlooked ideas in the whole of modern history. And I'm astonished that there's never been um, a definitive book on this subject until, you know, until I, you, we, them, really. Um, And the the term, it comes from a German concept um, originally. And the term in German is, it started to be used in the kind of early 1960s. And it's often, um, people say it, it really came from the trial of Adolf Eichmann, the kind of bureaucratic organiser of of parts of the Holocaust. And um, this term, Schreibtischtäter, it it sort of translates in German as desk perpetrator. But the the perpetrator side, the tater side, always has a sort of very negative connotation. So it's the idea of, you know, um, anybody involved in criminality would be a tater. But the fascinating thing for me is the idea of people who kill from their desks without, without needing to kill directly. And these of this, of course, is is a, a term that is absolutely. It's not just about history. It's not just about the Holocaust. It's not just about colonial history. It's also about absolutely our world today. So people working in corporations today, people working potentially in an oil company, a pharmaceuticals company, an arms company. These are people who stay in their headquarters, whether it's in London or New York or Berlin, and they never see the victims they kill directly. They, they would never meet those people. And I'm completely, I've been, I've been compelled by this for, for, year, for, th- for more than 30 years um, by this subject of the, the, the Schreibtischtäter, or as I call them, the desk killers. 
Yeah, it's an absolute mammoth book that you've written. Over, I think it's over a thousand pages, um, and it's as you said, drawing on decades of research. Um, but what was the what was the thing that initially drew you to this topic? Was the sort of a pivotal moment for you that? Well, yeah, your I mean, it, it it is a huge book. I I I don't want that to be off putting to people because I've tried to write it in a very very accessible way, more like reading a novel that you can't put down. That's that was my that was my aim in in the way I wrote it. Um, there were really three. I would, I, I think, I'd take you through three moments that I could, you could call light bulb moments in terms of the evolution of the ideas behind the book. Um, the first moment came when I was really young. I mean, I'm now you know middle aged guy, but this was just after I'd left university um, in the mid to late eighties. And the, this film by a French director called Claude Landsman came out in, that, in 1986 called Shoah. And that film absolutely stunned me. I mean, it was nine and a half hours long. I went to see it over two days with a friend of mine. And there was one particular scene in that film. It's, it's a series of interviews with perpetrators, survivors and bystanders of the Holocaust. Um, it's incredibly original because there's no, there's none of the usual footage. There no, there's no footage of bodies. There's no archive footage used. It's simply interviews with people who are still alive. That's what made it remarkable. Um, but in that film, Shoah, there was a memorandum that was read out, which was different to anything else in the film. And it was an it was a memorandum written by one desk killer to another desk killer, and the language was so appalling, I couldn't get it out of my head. It was a kind of trauma moment, and it was it, this is the kind of language, the bureaucratic language that was used, um, modifications to special vehicles now in service at Kulmhof and for those now being built. Since December 1941, 97,000 have been processed by the three vehicles in service with no major incidents. Um, a reduction in capacity seems necessary. Um, this extends the operating time. The void must be filled with carbon, carbon monoxide. It, it was just a series. Of, you didn't know what this was about, this memorandum. You couldn't work out what it was about. And only slowly do you realise... What it's describing is it's a communication from um, a, a man called Willy Eust to um, Obersturmbaumfuhrer Walter Ralph about how mobile gas chambers can be modified that were used in um, trucks made by um, a Swiss company, Saurer. How these, could, these trucks could be modified to become more efficient killing machines. And it says, as it says, 97,000 have already been killed. And I was so astounded at this, this kind of language, this bureaucratic language. And I was also astounded by the fact that it, it was, sounded very modern in a way. It could have been like one businessman writing to another businessman about improving profitability or something like that. So that was the first moment I thought, how is it possible to, to use that kind of language about the killing of human beings, the organised killing of human beings? That was the first light bulb moment. The second light bulb moment happened about um, maybe seven or eight years later. And the company I was working with then, and I was one of the founders of Platform, we'd started looking at 
the environmental and human rights impacts of transnational corporations, particularly looking at the oil industry, um, and what was going on, for instance, in Nigeria with with Shell in Nigeria and Chevron and some other companies in in Nigeria, and um, it, it was extraordinary to us in platform that that in 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 nineteen ninety three um, there were things going on which were just shocking. I mean, there was whole areas of the Niger Delta had been appallingly polluted. Um, and Shell were kind of pretending it was just, you know, all there were just the occasional oil spill, but there was no, no, da- no major damage. It was total environmental devastation, um, and it, there began to be a campaign by um, the Agoni people, led by um, an inspirational activist and writer called Ken Sarawiwa, who some of our older listeners may remember from the 1990s. He was a brilliant writer and a, and a non-violent activist, I mean, a Gandhian activist. Anyway, for campaigning for against the environmental degradation of his land and for campaigning non-violently, he managed, he, in early 1993, he managed to get production, oil production stopped, halted. A staggeringly effective campaign. And of course, the Nigerian government, who were then a military government, and Shell realised that this was threatening their massive profits. And so there was a one of the most cynical things that have ever been done in the name of you know so-called justice. They organised a kind of um, trial on trumped-up charges against Ken Sarawiwa and eight colleagues. And these men, these nine men, were sentenced to death at the end of a sham trial, which um, all legal observers said was one of the worst kind of kangaroo courts they'd ever seen. Um, people thought the, the the executions couldn't go ahead. Um, Nelson Mandela was then an important person in terms of the Commonwealth, saying, you know, we need to use quiet diplomacy. And almost certainly... Shell could have prevented those executions going ahead. But people did nothing. I was absolutely, this second light bulb moment, what fascinated me more than anything else was imagining all the people in the Shell Centre in Waterloo, that was then at Waterloo on the South Bank, um, it was imagining them going into work the next day, business as usual. How do we protect the company? How can we keep the share price high? I mean, that's what absolutely gripped me, you know, and that was truly shocking to me. So that kind of compartmentalization, that was the second light bulb moment. And then the third, which happened in the late 90s, this is all of these three things happened before I started the really intensive 15 years, 20 years work of research. But the third light bulb moment happened reading an extraordinary book by Gita Sereni that some of um, your listeners will know. Um, and Gita Sereni, um, really, she's best known for two incredible books, one on Franz Stangl, who was the commandant of Treblinka, and the other on Albert Speer, who was Hitler's um, originally Hitler's architect and then became Hitler's um, minister for arms and, and, and war production in the war. And she spent two years with Speer and towards the end of his life. 
and interviewing him in incredible detail about how it was that he, as a kind of technocrat and organiser in this monstrous machine, could actually think of himself as being, you know, a, a not, not involved in the barbarity. And, and, and I, I became so fascinated by, by Speer. I did a lot of, then, a lot of research on him. And there was a particular line in the book um, where Speer is talking about compartmentalization. Speer says this, Hitler required us not only to compartmentalize our activities, but also our thinking. He insisted that each man should only think about his task and not be concerned with that of his neighbor. And there was actually an order passed in January 1940, the General Order Number no. 1, which, which stated in this order, every man need only know what is going on in his own domain. And it was this idea of people operating in separate chambers where nobody actually asked questions outside their own chamber. Um, and that was a moment where I realised, I mean, and, and Speer himself late, later said this, which is astonishing, thinking he was, he was the person who did the Nuremberg rallies. He was the person who, who did, was such a brilliant organiser that some people say the war went on an extra year because of his, um, you know, factory production methods and arms manufacturing methods. Um, and this is what he said. He, he, he said, um, I felt myself to be Hitler's architect Political events did not concern me. I felt there was no need for me to take any political positions at all. And in 1944, he writes to Hitler, the task I have to fulfil is an unpolitical one. I have felt at ease in my work only so long as my person and my work were evaluated solely by the standard of practical accomplishments. And then Speer says this, today it seems to me that I was trying to compartmentalise my mind. And that is the thing that I then thought, that's the key to these perpetrators, to the desk killers. It's compartmentalisation. I want to revisit Albert Speer, actually. Obviously, he was tried at Nuremberg and he was one of the, the few that weren't executed. And that was partly because he um, accepted that his accepted responsibility for his role. And then after, when he was imprisoned, there was this long process of him maybe coming to terms with it a bit more about what, what he actually was responsible for. What is your take on Albert Speer? Do you think that he did actually accept what he'd done? Or was he, during the whole time of the Second World War, was he tunnel visioned on his own task? Or do you think he did have broader knowledge of what was going on with the with the Holocaust and things like that? I mean, that's a, that's a question that has um, occupied dozens of historians and hundreds of people over the last um, over the last seventy five years. I think the view now it, it's very clear that Speer knew vastly more than he said at the time and immediately after the war. I mean, vastly more. Um, and there's, of course, we now know that he was at Posen at this incredibly important speech that Himmler made in Posen towards the end of the war, where Himmler talks about the 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 the, um, the decision to exterminate the Jews. Um, and Speer spent an enormous amount of time trying to pretend we were getting a chauffeur to do an affidavit that he'd left the meeting before Himmler made that speech. We now know that's not true. So there's no doubt that Speer knew more. But... I also think, it, because he spent 
the vast majority of his time in Berlin uh, in the ministerial headquarters, that he very, very rarely was confronted directly with the results of his actions, with the results of his work. And there, in fact, there's, a, there's an extraordinary moment. It's a moment I, I, I talked about with um, Gita Sereni. I, I only met her once, um, sadly, but we had this really extraordinary conversation. And um, we, we both talked about this moment when Speer, um, in late 1943, he, he visits Dora, which was a V2 manufacturing plant for the V2 rockets in the Hartz Mountains. And it's one of the only times when Speer um, is directly confronted by the kind of horror of what his war machine has kind of unleashed, and he can see people dead at the side of the of, 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 at the side of the works um, as he's going into this mountain um, underground factory, and he can see he actually looks into the eyes of these slave labourers, and of course they're his slave labourers. And, it, and it's a staggering moment. Um, and it's a moment that afterwards, um, he has a kind of uh, physical and mental breakdown, which lasts for many weeks in, in, in December, um, in, in, in December 43 and early 44. And, um, and it's the moment he says, when he's, he's talking to Sereni, and he writes about this as well, that when he realises at the end of the war, that in his words, that he he that he then thinks Hitler's kind of unhinged, and in the in the very last months of the war, he actually began to um, countermand Hitler's orders for kind of destroying things because Hitler had this in, in the last months when he knew the war was lost. He had this idea of you know well if Germany doesn't have the ability to win this war, then it should be destroyed. And it was a kind of extraordinarily narcissistic thing. He was going to die. He knew he was going to commit suicide. He wanted to take Germany with him. And Speer began to kind of um, go against that, as did some of the other people in the, in, the high, in the high command. But, you know, how do we judge Speer? Um, I think it's extraordinarily poignant that when he was in Spandau, for those 20 years, there was a moment of, of about two to three years early on in his sentence where I believe he genuinely attempted to understand what had happened to him and how he had become involved in this monstrous project. He just begins to open up some kind of conversation and dialogue with this um, a man I write about, this Protestant priest called Casales, um, which I write about quite a lot in the book. And there's this sense of Casalis asks him to open his mind and spirit to suffering and gives him an incredible reading list to try and become a human being again. And Speer actually says, will you help me to become a different man? And that, whatever you think of Speer, is an extraordinary moment in this man's life. And, and I think it was then reversed. When he was released, he became a kind of media celebrity. And a lot of that brilliant work that Casales had done was kind of jettisoned. But there was this... Re I don't know if you, got, if you got that feeling from reading the book. There's this moment where you see an opening in Speer. That was something that really struck me when I was reading some of his diary entries, which you include. 
um, where he's got this, it's seemingly quite large capacity for self-reflection that even he sort of admitted was quite surprising because he previously been this very sort of statistical mathematical man who and he even said it himself like can't relate to other humans um yes. even his friends and family he's quite closed off he I think he speaks about admiring Hitler because Hitler was very charming and able to make someone feel special and he could not relate to that quality but then when he's in prison he sits there and he reflects on his personality and um, why he might be a certain way. And I, as I was reading it, I was, I was kind of annoyed with myself because I was thinking I don't want to feel empathy towards this man, but I couldn't help feeling like a bit of his humanity coming through in those entries. But I think that's I, I don't think I don't think you should feel annoyed with yourself there at all, um, Rachel, because I think it's uh, what you're talking about here is is the human capacity for empathy, and I think. Um, one of the things I love more than anything about Gita Sereni's work is she was really heavily criticised, particularly by historians, um, for the work on Stengel and Speer, because some people felt she got too close to her subject, both of those subjects. And yet I have a completely different view to that. I think she, she, she realises if we are going to really understand the minds of perpetrators. We have to go beyond the labels and we have to see people's humanity. And, and there's, this, um, there's this real dichotomy we have when we're looking at perpetrators. And it's best, it's, it's, it's absolutely exemplified by these lines in a book by the German writer Bernard Schlink. He writes this in The Reader. And it's, it's, I've always thought these lines go to the heart of the matter. Um, He's writing in this book about a, a woman who's been done an appalling crime in, in the Second World War, a German woman that the narrator has got very close to, a woman called Hannah. And he finds out then she's uh, responsible for this barbaric crime. And then he writes this, I wanted simultaneously to understand Hannah's crime and to condemn it, but it was too terrible for that. When I tried to understand it, I had the feeling I was failing to condemn it, as it must be condemned. When I condemned it, as it must be condemned, there was no room for understanding. So if we want to condemn, which I completely understand, and as somebody who's spent years and years in activism, I have moments of rage and fury about the world and how it's operated and in whose interests it's operated but I know if I start to condemn totally, all my humanity disappears. And I think it's incredibly important that we still, we, you know, St. Augustine said, you hate the sin, not the sinner. And I think that is extraordinary. We have to look at the, the sin, the action, the crime, the responsibility, look at that relentlessly. But Keep in mind the human being as well. Always keep in mind the human being. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. This fascinates me, the way that the desk killers have never received the kind of justice that direct killers receive. If you were a young guard at a concentration camp and shot somebody trying to escape, a lot of those people were executed after the war. If you were a senior organiser in the German civil service, you had a suspended sentence 
for, for two or three years and then were reintegrated into German society. I mean, staggering, staggering difference in, in how justice was not done. Well, it's quite interesting. We love to label people evil. I mean, we label serial killers evil all the time. And true crime's so popular. Um, but it's actually, like, on that theme, it's quite an othering act to be like, this person is an evil person, because it sets them apart from us. And I think in your book, because it's looking at people who are, making, who are making these decisions that result in deaths from, you know, from their desk um, or behind closed doors, um, they're actually maybe a bit closer to us than we would care to we'd care to think um so i think that's that's a really important thing to hold on to is like looking for why is this happening would i make i mean would i make that decision if i was in the right set of circumstances in the right organization would i be complicit in something that i never would dream of being just have sat here looking at it all objectively um but when you're like a wheel in a cog i don't know i, I mean absolutely you've you've, you've nailed it i mean uh, the you know that that in a way is music to my ears because the way I've the way I've written the book, um, I've it's it's absolutely asking every reader, not just to look at the world in a different way, but to look at their own life and to look at their own responsibilities and to look at their own ethics, and I've always felt, you know, just to use that term evil is such an astonishing act of laziness. I mean, whenever it's used often in the tabloid media. It's just, it's just laziness. Because you say evil, and then there's no need to, there's no need to um, you know, analyse, really understand, do the work, the hard work, the mental work. Um, and, and so, I, I, yeah, you're, I think you're, you're completely right about that. I mean, um, there's a whole passage about how we look at perpetrators, and I quote Primo Levi and Hannah Arendt, who are two of the greatest writers on this subject? Um, and there's um, and uh, Primo Levi. As Primo Levi says this about people we consider evil now in Nazi Germany. Um, we must remember that these faithful followers were not born torturers, were not monsters. They were ordinary men. Monsters exist, but they are too few in number to be truly dangerous. More dangerous are the common men, the functionaries, ready to believe and act without asking questions. And Hannah Arendt said this, The trouble with Eichmann was precisely that so many were like him, and that the many were neither perverted nor sadistic, and that, that they were, and still are, terribly and terrifyingly normal. From the viewpoint of our legal institutions and of our moral standards of judgment, this normality was much more terrifying than all of the atrocities put together. And I would argue that we're still in that place where we can't see the normality of these terrifying perpetrators. We can't actually, we can't look and analyse that. We haven't developed a language yet to do that. And so, of course, People retreat to these words like evil, which are just a lazy shorthand, We're almost without meaning. Absolutely. I mean, you speak about this when you describe uh, the events of the Bonzi Conference, which is when um, a group of Nazi leadership came together to discuss what they termed the final solution. 
And the thing that struck you about it was how many of them were doctors and university educated. Um, what, what, was it that, what was it that you were thinking when you were looking at this information about these I people? Mean, this started with, um, I was in Washington at the Holocaust Museum in Washington. And um, it started there because I... I was in, there'd been, the, the, this was late 90s, and the museum had just opened. And a lot of, there'd been a lot of discussion about this particular exhibit, which was footage of Einsatzgruppen killing on the Eastern Front. Um, and there was discussion about whether it should, should be shown or not. And I went into the room where this film was playing, and there were probably 20 or 30 people clustered around this, watching this film. Shocking film. Um... And I wasn't interested in watching those images. I just thought I'm not, you know, I, I, I'd seen them before, I, I, but I just, I, I, it wasn't, you know, I thought, isn't it fascinating? Because of all the media focus on that, everybody was now looking at that, at that footage. And I went over to the other side of the room and there was a single sheet of A4 paper, you know, a single sheet of paper with the names of the um, 15 men who had attended the Vance Conference in January 1942. And the thing that staggered me, uh, some of those were names that we would know, like Eichmann, um, like Muller, the head of the Gestapo, but most of them were names I hadn't heard of at the time. And eight of these, eight of these men out of 15, eight of them were doctor. And had doctorates, had PhDs. And it's possibly because I'm from a family of academics. I mean, my, my dad was a classicist um, at UCL and my grandfather was a historian, actually. And uh, so it's probably maybe partly for that reason. I was kind of absolutely appalled that half of the organisers of the Holocaust at this meeting were, you know, highly academic men. And so I, I did, I started doing a lot of research on them. And at that time, you know, when I started doing research on this, there was no, you couldn't just Google things. You couldn't just stay in your, you, you know, I, this was legwork. This was going to archives in Berlin and in London and Washington. You know, this was doing a lot of legwork. And I did a lot of work at the Wiener Library in London, a brilliant um, Holocaust library. And I found out there was such limited information on these, on these perpetrators. And it's taken until, I mean, it's this, this book came out, only, I think, 2017, it's taken more than 75 years after the end of the war for a book to come out on the people who organised the Holocaust at the Wannsee, this book called The Participants by um, Hans Christian Jasch and Christoph Kreuzmuller. And, and, you know, but when I started, there was almost nothing available, so I had to piece things together. And I found out about these men. I mean, they were half, more than half of these doctors I think five of them had law doctorates. They were lawyers. And these were the men who met in this villa that I describe in this particular chapter in the book. And they sat around a table and discussed how an entire racial group could be exterminated, as well as um, Sinti and Roma and, and, and other minorities. And it, it just, again, and, and the judgment on these people, Rachel, I mean, after the war, three of those senior figures, people, people who co-authored the Nuremberg race laws, 
people who, you're Martin Borman's deputy, these people, they were given suspended sentences. Some of them were released for time already served, three years, one and a half years. They lived until the 1980s. One of them died in 1987. They became, you know, pillars of the community again. And, and this fascinates me, the way that the death killers have never received the kind of justice that direct killers receive. If you were a young guard at a concentration camp and shot somebody trying to escape, a lot of those people were executed after the war. If you were a senior organiser in the German civil service, you had a suspended sentence for, for two or three years and then were reintegrated into German society. I mean, staggering, staggering difference in, in how justice was not done. It's kind of interesting, the, the cognitive dissonance that some of these people had about what they'd done as well when they were confronted about it. Um, so you write about Eichmann in particular, when he was on trial in Jerusalem in 1961 um, and someone accused him of murdering, um, he was furious at this accusation because he, you know, technically hadn't physically killed anyone with his own hands. Um, and I think he said, I never killed a Jew or non-Jew for that matter. I never killed a human being. And yet he was one of the key people at the Bonzi conference who was sat there making those decisions about death camps and transportation and all of that. Um, and he did not, he did not display any awareness that that was that he'd been involved. It was what, literally wiping his hands of it. And it's quite astonishing, that psychological leap. It, it, but as you say, I mean, that's a, that's a brilliant example of cognitive dissonance. I mean, that, that, that somebody could be involved in organising the machinery of the genocide and yet be appalled at the idea that he was being accused of being individually violent. I mean, it's staggering. And yet maybe that's, again, a kind of human way of protecting yourself. That we, you know, all of us have these images, all of us, I'm sure, have these images of ourselves, um, which we, which may be radically at odds with the reality that other people might see. I mean, that's the slightly scary thing in this. You kind of, you, you, you know, um, but, but we can see it, we can very clearly see it with perpetrators often, that there's these so many ways of deflecting personal responsibility. I mean, so many ways where, uh, you know, you can pretend to yourself that you haven't seen something, that you can pretend to yourself that you're, you're not responsible. I mean, in the book, uh, there's, a, there's the section where um, we should probably explain to listeners that um, I spent about a year... Um, actually 18 months in some cases, setting up interviews with people at really senior levels who had worked in the oil industry. And um, I was wanting to exactly tease out how much people know, how much people don't want to actually see what they, they know is going on. And um, so those interviews are, uh, and I'd like to do more of those with, with really people involved at senior levels in, in companies. Um, and really look at this question because people I think deep down they do understand if they're being asked about this not in a not in an accusatory way because I was very very warm in those interviews I was very human very um, empathetic and I think people were surprised they expected me to come at them with these hard questions and actually what I was trying to get them to talk about 
was how idealistic they were as as children, how fascinated they were in geology, and how but step by step by step by step by step they became involved in a company that was doing barbaric things in another part of the world. And they were then in a position where they had to justify those actions and all the myriad psychological methods by which people can try and justify, which I try and talk about in the book. And I have these 10, there are these 10 criteria that I talk about that I don't think anybody has ever really, I mean, I I, I, I wrote them as these 10 criteria as a kind of challenge to people, organisational psychologists, activists, to all of us to start to look in a really analytical way at what are the methods by which people take away responsibility from their actions and deliberately do not see things. I mean, this is one of my questions for you, actually. What what steps does a person go through that means they're able to rationalise being either indirectly complicit or actively directing something, you know, a, directing a great a great evil, ultimately? I mean, they're not, of course, the factors are not the same in, in all the cases that, you know, there are unique ex- situations and contexts. The 10 factors which enable people in organisations to kill are I num- uh, number one incrementalism, that the the dozens of little steps from one thing to the next, where you can't actually see what's happened. You know, you step by step by step by step. And in the book, I I use the example of um, Stangl, who was the who became the commandant of Treblinka, but him starting off as a boy, actually as a basket weaver in Austria, and then he 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 gets a position in in uh, with the police. Uh, he doesn't get on with his boss in the police, so he's he's asked for a transfer, and he's transferred to a euthanasia killing centre, and and then it's step by step by step, like twenty two steps in his case, and and he was a Catholic, he was a very serious Catholic as well, which is pretty astounding to end up as the commandant at Treblinka, with one point two million people being exterminated where you, where you're working, you know, I mean, so incrementalism, that's one. The second one is what I call normalisation and peer conformity. So how we look at all the people around us. And if people around you accept something, then you tend to, it's extraordinarily hard to go against what everybody else around you, your peers are accepting. That The case study I give there are the doctors who worked at Auschwitz. Um, and that was remarkable, the way that the, 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 the doctors who'd taken the Hippocratic Oath uh, end up in a process of selecting people for the gas chambers. I mean, that's staggering. But the way that that was done through a process of alcohol, through a process of people having mentors, um, junior doctors being given senior doctors to talk to, to talk through their ethical problems with. I mean, staggering. Wasn't there one doctor who said, I actually wrote it down, one doctor said it was only possible to be human for the first minute of being in, in the concentration camp. You had to become numb very yes, quickly. Yes, there was this w- little window. Uh, you could call it a window of humanity. And then once you went through that window, it was impossible to go back. You were, you were so implicated then. I mean, yeah, it, uh, no, ab- absolutely that. Um, then the then the, the issues about the dehumanization of language, how the victim is abstractified, how is so many examples I've seen, people stop seeing individual human beings, and what you see is an abstract mass of people. This is why the book is called "I You We Them," because once you start seeing a collective them, 
then genocide can begin. Once you've made people into objects, genocide can begin. So that's really important. Distancing yourself from the act of violence, exactly what you talked about with your example of Eichmann getting so angry at his trial that he'd been accused of killing this, this um, young boy, Hungarian boy. So he was actually distancing himself from the, from the direct act of violence without realising that, of course, the violence he was unleashing was a totally different level from his office, from his desk. And then perhaps the most important criteria, transferring personal responsibility to the authorities' responsibility. And this is where things like the Milgram test in obedience to authority comes in. And this is also where I'm fascinated in terms of modern corporations, the way that so many corporations in the late 90s and early noughties started talking about corporate social responsibility, CSR. And they began to have departments in their company which would look at the ethics and the environmental issues. And the huge problem with that is that because there was then a specialist department that was dealing with that, it actually takes away the individual responsibility from the ordinary worker, the ordinary executive. And because they can say, oh, well, there's a whole other department dealing with that ethics, CSR. We don't have to think about that stuff. And then compartmentalisation of thought, a culture of workaholism, prioritisation of abstract systems over human beings, and looking away, or what I call willful ignorance. So those are the ten, the, 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 those are sort of ten um, factors which you see again and again in perpetrators. And um, all of them really need to be examined. And in, this, in the next book, I'll be, I'll be looking at in more detail at those as well. But um, yeah, those are, those are just some of the, some of the, some, that's some of the analysis. Something in your book that um, I'd never really thought about, basically, until, until I had actually read your book, was the level of involvement of corporations in the logistics of the Holocaust. Um, so you mentioned, you mentioned right at the start of the book, the, the Swiss company um, who were providing these mobile gas chambers, and it's a company that's still ex in existence today, and they've sort of, they don't acknowledge this part of their history necessarily. Um, so a question I wanted to ask you was, do you think that corporations um, involved with the Holocaust or had a role to play in, in the Holocaust and the organisation of it, have they done enough to recognise that and have they done enough to make amends no, for that? No, I mean, absolutely not. I mean, the, um, the, uh, the, way we, the, the, the way we look at history is sometimes so limited. I, I, I'm, I'm astonished at the at the our inability sometimes to see massive realities that are almost there but we we don't look at them um one of the most inspirational quotes i ever read and which helped me in my research enormously comes in a book by wg sebald um called austerlitz and um sebald's protagonist in the book at the end of a description of a battle he writes this Brilliant, brilliant sentence. He says, Our concern with history is a concern with preformed images already printed on our brains, images at which we keep staring while the truth lies elsewhere, away from it all, somewhere as yet undiscovered. 
And the whole of the work I've been doing the last 20 years has been looking at that. The truth lies elsewhere, somewhere as yet undiscovered. And I look, I mean, really, my book is um, an alternative history of the Holocaust, where I'm looking at the most powerful forces in the society at the time, which were, of course, corporations. And um, this is embodied by a single walk that I, I do with my colleague Jay in the book, where we go from the most known part of Auschwitz that 99.5% of people when they visit Auschwitz go to, which is the where the main museum is. And that was the political camp, um, what, camp number one. Um, some visitors to Auschwitz go to Birkenau, where the gas chambers were, to the west of the town. Almost nobody, a matter of a few dozen people a year, do the walk that I did with Jay across the town of Oswicem, about four kilometres, and there is something so staggering in the eastern part of Auschwitz, Oswicem today, and it's still there today. The biggest complex built by the second biggest transnational corporation in the world in the 1940s, who were IG Farben, vast German pharmaceuticals company, who had today, they're, they're, still, they're still kind of in existence in a way today, because today they're Bayer, Agfa, Herx, BASF. So they're still German companies, but they were split up after the war. In the war, this was the biggest company in Germany, hugely powerful, Without IG Farben, Hitler could not have waged the Second World War. And in Auschwitz, they built this vast chemical complex to try and manufacture synthetic fuels and synthetic rubber. And this is where um, Elie Wiesel and, um, and Primo Levi were slave labourers, 30,000 of them. It was what we would today call a public-private partnership between the SS and IG Farben. IG Farben paid for the, um, for the camp, and then they basically um, rented out the slave labourers to the SS. And th about 30,000 people died, uh, exterminated through work. Now, I'm not saying it's not important to look at the, the, the Auschwitz that we do know, and the piles of shoes, and the piles of... Um, you know, and, and the piles of briefcases, suitcases, and the gas chambers. Of course, of course. But but what I'm saying by using that quotation from Seabard is that it's we've we've got an entirely distorted view of without looking at the corporations, without looking at IG Farben properly, without looking even more than IG Farben, without looking at companies like Deutsche Bank, Allianz, the insurance company. All the concentration camps were insured. Allianz profited from insurance premiums. Allianz is still a massively successful insurance company today. They've never properly looked at their responsibility for the Holocaust. Deutsche Bank lent vast sums of money, loans, to, to actually build Auschwitz. Um, you know, and, uh, and they were involved in the, in the dispossession of Jewish assets hugely. I mean, so financial companies, insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies. And, you know, I don't think this aspect of the Holocaust has ever had the attention it, it deserves. Why do you think that 
it's been overlooked so long. Do you think we have a tendency that we want to blame an individual? Like we we want to be like, oh, it was Hitler and he was this madman, evil psychopath. And it's almost easier for us to be like, the whole thing was this one guy's idea and it won't happen again because we won't let a psychopath get into power. Rather than be like, actually, there were so many different spider webs interlinking and that's a more complex picture. Why, why, why I think, have we I, mean, I think you're right. I think it's it's so much easier to look at individuals rather than huge systems. Um, I in the in the book, I towards the end of the book, I trace the way that uh, the way that our understanding of the Holocaust has moved from looking at the diary of Anne Frank, so the suffering of a single girl in Holland, the huge success of that after the war, and then it t- it took another fifty years before the first book started to be written about certain corporations, you know, um, uh, corporations um, and, 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 and Nazi Germany. And I think one of the problems, we, a huge problem we've got, is, is it actually the capacity of the human brain? And when I was working on the, the early research into IG Farben, I came across the... Uh, I had a... Just for a short time, I had a research assistant working with me for a few months, and he found in the Wiener Library transcripts of the trial of IG Farben after the war. And this single transcript um, thing, it, it came to, to, you know, something like 20 or 30,000 pages. And, 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 and we just started laughing because we realised that, you know, it would take... It would take 10 of us, if I had 10 people, 10 researchers, to to be able to read simply that, to understand that single company and and its responsibility in the war. It would take teams of people. And systems are so vast that it's almost defeats the, it almost defeats the human brain, that kind of scale. And in the book, you'll remember towards the end of the book, um, I quote the great um, the great American historian of the Holocaust, Raoul Hilberg, and in his one of his last books, he simply prints: "If we are to truly understand the Holocaust, we have to look at how all of these agencies work together." And over about three pages, he just lists all the different organisations and the ministries and the companies and the you know all the different agencies. And I think. Again, we're at the beginning of this process to be able to look at how all of these things fit together. As you you use this phrase about a spider's web, I mean, it is like the vast web, the biggest web you can imagine, and how things all fit together. And I I think it's very very hard for us to see that, um, to for our minds to encompass that. I suppose I, so that's a rather long answer to your question, which is very pertinent, and you know we need to think about more. We've talked a bit about the psychology of individuals, the idea of an ordinary, ordinary and inverted commas person and how they could come to commit some an awful crime or something. Um, we haven't talked about maybe people who went there against are the brain. There are there are some examples of of people who who refused to to go along with 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 orders. Um, uh, Daniel Goldhagen um, talks about one of one of the myths of the Holocaust is that um, you couldn't be transferred out of your unit if you were if you were appalled at what you'd been ordered to do. It, that, that it used to be said that you know if you didn't obey the orders you would be shot. 
Now, a lot of research in the last 10 to 20 years has shown that that's actually quite untrue. And there were people. There were people in the, in the, in the security um, units and the police units who had been asked to, to uh, you know, to commit um, killings of civilians, um, executions on the Eastern Front, who did request transfers, and they were transferred. And, and you know, so this, uh, I, I think... I think that's really important, that, that research that's been done in the last, I would say, two decades, because that, that really breaks down this idea that you couldn't, you couldn't refuse to obey orders. Um, and there are, uh, there, there's an example, an incredibly powerful example um, of a, a, a man who witnessed, who witnessed the, the, an Einsatzgruppen killing um, and actually, then he 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 became one of the people who testified after the war, um, and it's 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 a staggeringly moving. It's one of the most moving accounts I've ever read of the Holocaust. And he he's watching the, the family undressing, and this man he was a he was a businessman, and it's astonishingly he was allowed to get close enough to see these killings. And he's watching this family undressing and he's watching a father pointing to the sky with his son in his arms and he's watching the grandmother. And it's, 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 it's just a, it's, it's, it's one of the most powerful pieces ever written down. And that only came to light because of this man's courage, this ordinary German businessman's courage. Um, and um, I write about that in the next book, actually. But it's it's there. There are examples of people, but they were so rare in the context of the ninety nine point nine percent of people who went along with the orders who didn't question. So we're talking about something very special in a in a tiny percentage of people who actually said that their humanity, their ethics, was not going to stop them, was in, was in fact going to, going to mean they had to do something, they had to bear witness. But it's extra extraordinarily rare in the context of the Holocaust. There was a case that I was reading in your, in your book, I think it was yesterday, that I found incredibly moving, which was, I can't remember which camp it was in, but it was in one of the gas chambers and a young girl, I think she was 15 or 16, had survived. Um, and so they went in and saw that she was still alive. And for some reason, it kind of humanised the people in the moment. They were like, oh, it's a 15-year-old girl. And they brought her out and the doctors gave her, did they give yes, her that food? Yes, and... uh, that comes in, it's a Hungarian doctor called Naizli who um, describes that. And he was working as a doctor in in um, next in a, a unit next to the gas chambers, and that's an example of what we were talking about earlier. Where just for a moment, instead of being a mass, a group, collective group of victims, this girl becomes an individual, and she's still breathing. And they bring her back to life, and they give her soup. And of course, then they realise a couple of hours later when she's been revived. Of course, the horrific thing is they realise the senior person comes around and, and she cannot be allowed to live because she's a witness. So she's then shot. I mean, uh, it's, a, it's a devastating, devastating account in, in the book. And, um, but again, uh, that's, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, they thought there would be no witnesses. That's the extraordinary thing. They actually thought they could commit a crime on this scale and nobody would believe, or nobody would believe people who were left afterwards. And they tried to eradicate, of course. And the way the Sonderkommandos were set up, as you'll know, is that the people who were actually, the Jews, Jewish prisoners who were working in the Sonderkommandos on, in the, in the um, extermination camps, in the gas chambers, every month all of those people were killed and a new group were then put in their place precisely to stop the, the witnessing. And some of them did survive, but a tiny number. And some of that testimony is the most important testimony we've got on the Holocaust, because, um, you know, a, a matter of, I think, a dozen maybe of those people who in, in, worked in the Zonderkommandos actually survived and gave extraordinary accounts. People like Philip Muller, um, uh, a brilliant uh, uh, book by, by one of the, survi the survivors of the Zonderkommandos. Um, I guess the, my, my final question to you, um, and you've touched on it already, but what, what message do you really want people to take from it? What's the like fundamental message you want people to take away from your book? I'd like people to think about the nature of responsibility and how we never have held authorities to account properly for their actions. And that means governments, that means corporations, that means any any kind of authority system. And we're, we haven't been asking the right questions so far. And I want I wanted through this book to give start to give people a language where they could begin to ask incredibly searching questions of anybody in authority or anybody in an organization wielding power. Because I just don't think, I, I don't think we've begun to ask the right questions so far. And if this book contributes to that process in any way, it will have succeeded. That was Dan Gretton. His book, I, You, We, Them, Revealing the Desk Killers, Perpetrators of Crimes Against Humanity, is out now published by Penguin Books. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.